This is a trigger warning from the legal department. Just reminding you that this shit is pretty heavy. And that's okay. Take a deep breath. Don't forget to hydrate. Wash your fucking hands. When I think about decisions, about who to invite on the show, and friends, I've thought a lot about these decisions. One of the more obvious choices was to think deeply on human beings that had impacted my own personal growth as both a a professional human being as well as a seller. This is a conversation with the human that would probably be number one or number two on the list. Technically speaking, Dave Whiteside was a peer AE at Thomson Reuters back around 2010, 11, 12, 13, 14 land. And I touched on this a little bit in the episode, but friends, this this man was legendary. He was like a t- number one performer in the entire division for like 20 years, just like legend. And I don't think a week goes by where I don't use one of the lessons that I learned from Dave with a specific caveat of, oh wow, Dave taught me that. I wonder how Dave's doing thinking about Dave. Anyway, ah, this conversation, I would definitely say it's like a PhD level conversation about how to perform as the most professional and deeply valued individual contributor that you could possibly imagine, who of of course is uh, is nailing the uh, top performing list year after year, quarter after quarter. Anyway, we go into compensation plans. We go into preparation and practice. We go into skills and knowledge. We go into um, win-loss assessments and the excuse factory that is I lost over price. We go into integrity and staying true to your word. We go into ah, the value of, of our mistakes um, and some of the things that we learn from the uncomfortable conversations that happen, you know, after the fact or during the fact. Um, specifically after the fact, I'm talking about those, those often unspoken conversations that we need to have with ourselves. But anyway, Dave Whiteside, Dave Whiteside, Dave Whiteside. He means the world to me. <laughs> this this conversation, it, it does not get more unscripted than this. And in fact, I'll just let the beginning play so you can hear just, you know, the rapport and the banter and kind of what goes on behind the scenes. And also note, I guess worth noting, this is Dave's and my first conversation in at least three and a half, four years. Okay. And there was no like prep conversation leading into this. So it was in many ways completely unscripted, but um, as comfortable and familiar as a psychologically safe zone between peers, friends, mentor, mentee, you know, whatever the labels we're going to put on it today. But I know that this was a man that I learned a tremendous amount from and again I'm grateful to be able to to bring this conversation to you all and with that Dave Whiteside okay so Dave like do you know what you're have you listened to any of the episodes you know what you're getting involved in no idea oh my gosh this is amazing okay so right at the beginning I I'll I'm gonna intro you right and our history and my memories and all the amazing things so let's just assume that everybody's heard that target audience for the listener, right? To pull up in, in your brain, I would say is the experienced seller. Okay. The theme of the podcast. I love that. Like I'm sharing this. It's conversations about uncomfortable conversations and sales of which I'm sure you and I have plenty to choose from. Okay. I wrote down a bunch of things that we could possibly talk about. Normally, I wouldn't disclose this list, but your list, Dave, just so you know, says. All right. Mentorship, sales skills, sales knowledge, right? Remember when you grilled me on the, what do you mean you don't know what's inside your comp plan? So sales knowledge, data. They, these listeners, by the way, these are all things that Dave um, taught me. 
belief. I remember I wrote down TED Talk. You were the first person that ever said, like, when are you doing your TED Talk? Uh, knowledge management, the current state of knowledge management. And then you did, a, I saw one of the recent talks that you gave where you were moderating a panel on small data, getting small data inside the firm. And so those were all things that I wrote down as possible things to discuss. We could start in two different directions and I'll give you get carte blanche. So option A is our backstory. Like how did we, what was our uh, matter intake moment for everybody? Or option B, we can start with like your, when I said uncomfortable conversations in sales, what are the top three things that came to mind? So those are the two questions, dealer's choice, choose your own adventure. Gosh, uh, you know, I'd have to think hard about uh, about three uncomfortable uh, things in sales because there's been probably way more than that. I don't know. Why don't we start with the back history? Maybe that'll be uh, an easier place to, to start. I don't know how interesting that'll really be to anybody, anybody else, but in case it is. Well, there's a big, there's a lot of talk these days about mentors um, and how to get a mentor. What What's the purpose of a mentor? And on some of the other episodes, Dave, like I, I struggle with this, the, what I've used to say is the M word. And when I really like get into it and journal and think about why that is, part of it, Dave, you set the bar so damn high when it comes to mentors in my life that it's, it's been hard to, and there's other factors, but it's been hard to lean into some of these more recent relationships, I would say before the past 12 months. So COVID year, everything shifted and got better, but like, that was how I think of you. Um, and I was in many ways, like you were a legend at Thomson Reuters. You were a fucking legend. And like, here comes the Dave, the great Dave Whiteside. And all of a sudden he's in my, my sphere. And then in a situation where like, I get to learn from him on a regular basis and be taught you know, I think of all the things that I've learned from you that I still apply and think of daily. Like, so those are, I think this is a very interesting conversation and all the things that I'll have mentioned probably in the intro to you and for this episode, but like, what was it like? What do you remember about when our two teams were kind of smushed together with monitor suite, like the transfer of hub, like all the Hubbard one stuff? Do you remember? Yeah. Um, and what, so what, I was like a kid, I was like a fill in the blanks with tons of different adjectives and adverbs. Like what, what was it like being almost assigned a mentee in many ways? Yeah. Well, you, you, you have now set the bar so high that I don't know how to get over it or even under it. I, I guess I never thought of it as uh, I was anybody's mentor. I just knew that it was my job to, to share what, what we, what I knew because there were other people who were going to be responsible for doing what I was doing you, for example. And, uh, and so I, you know, I, but I never approached it as if I was being assigned to be somebody's mentor or something that, that, I don't know, that kind of carries a connotation with it that maybe is a little bit heavier than I, than I really would have wanted it. And, uh, so you just you just think about how do I help my colleagues, right? And I know my colleagues would like to help me, and so how do you how do you work together and and learn to share information and help each other and things like that? So I, you know, but I, I try not to think of it as I'm somebody's mentor because there's just there's a certain weight that comes with that that I'm not real sure that that uh, would be be totally accurate. Applicable. It's it's Dave. I didn't feel that at the time. Like this is hindsight, and like really digging into the nature of both like mentorship, but like as it relates to gender, right? Because a lot of the a lot of times the lion's share of the mentorship programs really rely on women. If you look at the numbers, and it tends to become a taxing thing. But also too, like I, you hit it on the nail when you said peer to peer. And so listeners, Dave was he was an equivalent of an AE, but probably like. At a big company like Thomson Reuters, he was one of the top AEs in the country. He was legendary and had been in that position for like 20 years. Um, and then, you know, Dave, it's so funny that you say peer to peer, though, because one of the things at the start of last year that really got me thinking about my own trajectory as a seller, like what did I learn when um, and from whom? And 
It started with a survey that was put out by a gentleman named Andy Paul, who is one of the top voices in our world. Dave, I found out yesterday that he was a keynote at DLA Piper's like conference one year on and like, so like talk about worlds overlapping. But so Andy had put out a poll. It's like, where do salespeople learn the most from? And it's like traditional sales trainings, obviously manager from the clients, self-taught and then peer to peer. And what I realized when I got into that, when I saw it laid out like that, now never mind the $2 billion, greater than $2 billion uh, sales training industry in the United States alone last year that doesn't work, never mind that waste. But it's the peer to peer, like leaning into the relationships that we have with peers and sharing in a, a way that, you know, we're not trying to like hoard secrets for, so that we can like, you know, outperform people. Like, so there's a toxic aspect to competition inside teams that's you have to be careful of, but you were masterful at that. You were masterful at that. I mean, what, how about like, I, I think of all of the growth that, that I've made since we last spoke, which was, I don't know, 2016. Right. We ended, stopped working together at the end of 2014, 13, something like that. So it's been a while, but, and this is a fancy or a nice way of saying all the mistakes that I've made. Like, what was it like working with someone that maybe was not necessarily as Westlaw or a little more green than you were accustomed to? Like, what was that process like of working together? I always thought that if, uh, if, if, if you can have fun doing what you're doing, you're more likely to be good at it. And so whenever I worked with my, my coworkers, I, I always wanted to, to make sure, or at least try to make sure that we were, we're having a good time, right? There's, you know, we're not going out there and it's some, uh, some big, heavy, stressful day. Let's go out and enjoy the day. But at the same time, there's things that have to be done to make sure you're prepared for that day. And, uh, one of the things that uh, that I think I probably stressed with you, and uh, and I and I know some others that I worked with, and some, you know, some would uh, drink the Kool Aid a little more willingly than others. Not not specifically pointing at you, but uh, the uh, what I was called the preparation. Listener, you should see Dave's face is smirking right now. Um, please continue, Dave. <laughs> it's uh, it's it's what I call the preparation Kool Aid. You know, there's a tendency to think that, you know, I've gone over the information, I understand it, I can go out, I can present it to others in, a, in an effective manner. And I never thought of myself as being that way. And I, and that goes back, I had early in my career, I mean, early, you know, early 20s, I worked for a company called the Research Institute of America, which ended up being acquired by Thomson Reuters. And there, I worked for two gentlemen who were incredibly good salespeople, uh, good managers, and the discipline that they put in me around preparation was something that stuck with me through my whole career. It wasn't good enough to know the material. You could, you had to be able to recite it from memory, everything. So that there was really very little that could happen in a sales call that you wouldn't at least know the knowledge. You might still screw it up, but it wasn't because you didn't know something. And so that level of preparation was something that uh, was drilled into me. And I, and I, and I just always used it uh, because I don't think I'm the smartest guy or the most talented guy, but I was, there was no reason I can't be the most prepared guy. So that was my kind of my philosophy around it. I even, I even look, I still have a coin here that they gave me. It says the research Institute of America on it. And on the back, it had what was the sales technique at that time. If you can, let me see if I can get that up there. Relax, listen. Concede, question, qualify, capitalize. And that was the sales structure that, uh, that we used at that time. And so even when you practiced, you'd go through, you know, openly relax. You're trying to relax the person with you. You know, you're good, got to make, focus on your listening skills. And they had, and the concede was really the, I don't know, it's a technique that today I think is widely used and taught in other, other methods, but it's a, you know, the, I understand your concern type thing. But anyway, this was all taught to me at that early age and preparation around that. And so whenever I worked with my, my own colleagues, 
I just always tried to stress that, you know what, we're going to do this preparation. And to me, that always paid dividends to the point that, as you may recall, with monitor sweep, remember when I used to make you go through and create PowerPoints of every single thing we would go through? Dave, I, I was going through some old documents. I found the old Johnson & Johnson report that, that was like, like the max one, like 250 pages. And I remember being drilled on what I saw in that report and how to use it during sales calls and be able to pull it out and refer to something and tell a story with it. And I laughed and I like, I pulled it and it was still laminated and it had the like round thing. And I, I think I even yeah. gave it to Pete. I was like, cause his father's a judge. I was like, you'd get a kick out of this one. I can't even throw it away. But Dave, I remember that. And I'm laughing because this is exactly where we ended the last conversation with on revenue will with Jordana talking about practice and talking about drilling for skill. And I believe the line that not it's not like your coin, but for me, it's perfect practice prevents poor performance. And in the same way that I, oh, I forgot all about the drilling, Dave, I forgot about that with the Johnson and John. And it was like, you dropped the report on my lap and it was the, the implication was learn it. And then we'll, we'll drill, like, we'll see how ready you are to do it. And oh my gosh. And it, oh, so yeah. And so here we are coming back to this practice, this concept of practice. And, you know, I, everything that you said just went so deep, but I, I want to push back a little bit just on one thing, even though 99 point shocking, right? So I haven't changed that much, my friend, but this idea of concede as being a widely accepted action during sales calls. So my universe these days is much more in the tech space, right? So think of all the Thompson as being like an acquisitions monster, but so tech companies and legal tech and trying to hit unicorns. So this is, there's an aspect of growing really fast, like 400% or 4X, 40X growth in five years. So there's a big rushing through sales motions, through sales calls. And this idea of concede, this idea of hell, listen as step two on the coin, like that is something that we're, we're pretty far away from in tech sales that we're now just kind of starting to shift back towards. And I think about all the amazing things that Thomson Reuters was when it came to like sales training, sales knowledge, sales relationship with peers. Like I, I learned about strategy. I learned about, I mean, Dave, do you remember one in one of our first conversations, you were like, well, tell me about the comp plan. And I was like trying to, you know, whatever I could barely, now this was, I think the third product listeners that our team had taken over. So it was like the, I was trying to learn the third comp plan, but Dave, to his point, like I didn't know the one that we were talking about. And he, he refused to engage in the conversation further, but also with a little bit of sting, like how could you possibly expect to do well financially and in this job, which is the point of this job without understanding the way that the compensation structure works, like go get the comp plan, read the comp plan, and then come back and we'll talk about it. And then once I did understand, and we were able to have that baseline conversation, you described and spoke about 20 years worth of engaging with evolving comp plans. And, you know, dare I say, breaking the comp plan and all the implications of being at a big organization. And so like, Dave, I don't think I've had one conversation with a mentee or someone that I was training and talking about the comp that I wasn't channeling you in that sense. And so, and then I could, we could talk about, I remember when I was venturing into experience data for this first time and understanding the implications of maintaining data and small data sets and knowledge in general and how it shifted and changed in impacted all aspects of the law firm. I mean, I could go on and on and on. And I just, I guess, thank you. Thank you for that. My, my, my time in this profession, my love for, tra for training and empowering other sellers, like it was born with you and during our time together. And I just want you to know that. And I'm so excited to have you on the show for others to like listen to the Johnson and Johnson drilling scenario that we had. <laughs> well, I, 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 by the way, I'm excited to be here and it's fun to, to talk about all the, all the good times and the learning times and probably some of the, uh, some of the disappointments we had and, and, you know, with, with things that we didn't sell, but, uh, but yeah, and I, but I was always that person that said, 
if you don't understand your comp plan, how can you know what you're supposed to do every day? You have to, you have to structure your day. You have to structure your plan. You have to prepare yourself for what you're going to do. And if you don't read your comp plan to know how you get paid, how can you possibly do that? And it just always seemed so fundamental to me. And uh, so be, because of that, part of it too was, well, if I'm going to spend the time to do this, I might as well make as much money as I can. And and so understand your comp plan if you're going to do that. There's no point being out uh, going through things that don't make you money. Because I've always had the philosophy that the company should have put that comp plan together knowing that it would motivate work. And if you're doing the things that aren't motivated by the comp plan, you're probably doing something the company doesn't want you doing. So why wouldn't you just make the assumption that they put this together so that I, I would follow it. To, and if I make as much money as I can, probably the company did too. And if it didn't turn out that way for the company, well, that's their fault for putting the comp plan together that way. But I always made the assumption that they, they built a comp plan that was designed to be maximized by everybody, the company and the, and the salesperson. So as silly as that might sound. It's not silly at all. It's not silly at all. And I'm glad, but like, Dave, we don't talk about that enough in our, like in our side of the house, or at least, you know, when I look at all the content out there for, for sellers, I, I, part of me, I look at it and say, oh my gosh, like this is all for people that are just getting started in the profession. And then actually the, the Andy Paul that I referenced yesterday, this was a conversation yesterday. He's like, it's all, it's all about prospecting. And so it's like, half of or 60, 70% of the how-to material that's being produced for our profession as it relates to tech sales is about prospecting, which is, it's, there's so much more to it and understanding what you just shared about the comp plan is a beautiful thing. And I'm glad it's recorded. And I'm glad we can, you know, inject that into an adjacent, but completely applicable, you know, listener group that's not, you know, legal marketers or yeah. um, information services. Ah, okay, so. <laughs> so let's see, what, what else would we talk about that I, uh, preparation. The other thing that, that is, I'm dying to ask you about is the pivot out, out of Thomson Reuters. So being there for 20 years and then moving into client first consulting and some of the work that you were doing over there. Like, so that piece of it, I think is very relevant as well, because in most places, right, as when you look at career paths for our profession, most of the time, the only option that's available to us is be a sales manager mm -hmm. or keep selling. Mm -hmm. Then there's the implications of where, what, can, what else can you do where you can make this much money? So all of that stigma, and I see, so that's a, a piece of it. I'm dying to know how it's going, but then I'm curious, what were you going to say about where to take the conversation? No, I, well, I would say, you know, I, I believe in preparation. And the other thing is, um, I think it re gets to your reputation. Um, Particularly, you know, spent most of my career in the, in the legal industry. And it's the type of industry, it's small enough where you only get one reputation. So when you tell somebody you're going to do something, you better do it. And, and you better be honest about what you're doing. Because once you sully that reputation, you're done. And you can't go to another company. You can't stay within that industry. You really have to change, make a wholesale change in your career. And, and usually that comes from some error in judgment where you told somebody you could do something that maybe you couldn't do. And, you know, if it's small, maybe you get away with it. But, uh, but you know, why, why take that risk? I mean, I've always kind of taken pride in being a, a person that if I tell someone I'm going to do something, I do it. And, but I think that's a fundamental thing, you know, just character uh, item that someone should have if you're going to be in sales is you need to you tell somebody you're going to do something, do it. And, and uh, so it's, it's sometimes it's the small things, you know, people get, uh, get looking for what I'll call that magic bullet in sales, right? What's the, what's that incredible closing line or what's the, what's the technique that, uh, you know, that, that'll make you a million dollars. And I, I've always thought that it's the small things. It's do all the little things correctly. You know, there's no, you don't skip steps. You just have to do everything in order. You got to stick to it. You got to grind it out and things will work out good for you. 
as soon as people try to skip steps and as soon as they try to, to bypass what I'll call some of the fundamentals of, of preparation of, and, and of, you know, being, being honest and, and telling people exactly what, what is what, um, I, I think that's when, you know, they, they tend to get into trouble. I remember, so you said something about that to me one time when I was younger and it was in the context of just over promise under deliver or like what you're supposed to do, which is under promise and over deliver. Mm -hmm. And, and for me, I, I, I mean, that was something, I mean, don't get me wrong. Like I remember my father telling me like, as long as you have our name, like you only get one of them. I expect for it to be treated in a certain way. Like, so this mm -hmm. was, but for me, it was always about like, again, just the overpromising and also not understanding how to measure time, like how long it takes to do something in the context of other things. And, but anyway, so I remember you saying that to me and that was something that really resonated and, and percolated for a long time. And you want to know another one since we're on Davisms, I remember watching you. So listeners in New York city, part of like, there's a different ethos to doing business and conducting business from city and it varies from city to city, country to country, obviously also something that's not spoken about enough in New York, a big part of forming, establishing, maintaining relationships is entertainment. And I think that that certainly is a factor in the legal marketing realm to legal business development, um, Dave, and correct me if, if I'm wrong there. However, I, I would watch Dave navigate right? Think of being in the field with somebody all day and then going out to whatever dinners or, you know, conferences and like just shadowing Dave and watching him navigate from conversation to conversation so flawlessly. And I think I picture it as like being able to spin 50 plates simultaneously in the air without one dropping or one slowing down. And I asked you, Dave, like, how can you balance that? Like, how do you balance having a fluid relationship with your prospects and buyers and clients while still getting shit done, um, particularly as it related to obviously the entertaining and being able to talk business. And, and you said to me words that I've never forgotten. And I repeat them again daily or not daily, at least weekly though. Amy, the most important thing is just have people like knowing which Amy is going to show up or needs to show up in advance, right? So give them the courtesy of, Hey, this is, this is a dinner. We're going to be, we're going to have fun for the most of the time, but, but I need like 10 minutes of shop talk, just so you know, and then you get that buy-in in advance. And so then the actual like conversation itself flows exactly as it should. I think there's an etiquette and a respect aspect to giving someone like a, you know, proper heads up. And so that was another piece of balancing, not just as many relationships with buyers, but buying teams and simultaneous motions. And we're talking hundreds of thousands of dollar deals. So like, and you were a master. And so that was another big one that really, really percolated and resonated for me. Good. I, you know, I guess I never thought of it as uh, entertainment. I always thought of it as relationship building. And, uh, and I always felt that I was fortunate in that the, clients that we worked with and the, the people that we were, you know, I guess entertaining is the right word. We, you know, drinks and dinner and things like that. But I looked at it as relationship building and by and large, you know, there, I'm sure there were some exceptions in there, but by and large, I felt very fortunate that I actually enjoyed being with these people. Um, yeah, you know, I've got, some people may not be comfortable in that uh, environment. They may not even like their clients, but I think if that's the case, maybe you're in the wrong job. And so it's so I've you know I just always felt that I was very fortunate and uh, and and the, the ability to to enjoy the the clientele that we had. Yeah, that's so true. And also, I think you were. I feel like this was part Jed Quattro that, and but also you, which was helping me to suss out when to start opportunities. You know, and so there was like a a, a deal scoring or an opportunity scoring at the onset. Um which is also part of the sales skills that, that you, you taught me. And so there's that aspect too. Like you're, when you're, when you're talking about an enterprise deal, a lot of people, a lot of time on all sides, right? There's an aspect of starting with a, an organization with a champion or a, a collection of champions that are ready to do so. And I think that's a piece of it too. 
would you say, or, or I don't know. I think it was a little bit different for us because, well, one, I miss that unlimited Amex card. That's like one of the biggest things I miss about Thompson Reuters. So you can call it whatever the hell you want, but it's a lot easier when, you know, like, woo, where's the new, like, you know, I don't know, steakhouse this week. Um, but yeah, you're right. It is relationship building. However, there's a smart aspect to picking when to start, like the timing around, opportunities. And even look at Dan, Dan Pink's latest book is uh, he's the guy that wrote to sell as human. It's when, right. The scientific benefits of perfect timing. And so there's that piece of it too, that you were masterful at, which was figuring out when's the appropriate time to start, not just opportunities, but with the relationships, the number of them per organization and, you know, where that person was at and, like after having been exposed to you, maybe you didn't drop a Johnson and Johnson monitor suite report onto anybody's lap, but they had learned by either reading your articles, coming to your talks, like there, there was a learning curve leading up to, you know, starting a, an, an engagement with the great Dave Whiteside too. That was, a, I think, a factor worth noting. Well, it, it was, uh, to me, it, it is timing, but the timing for me is always around when the client has a problem that they know that they need to solve, well, that certainly is when the timing is right. And everything, yeah, everything well, up until then, you're just making sure that they know you and you're, you're establishing a relationship, even though there may not be a buying opportunity present, but that way you, you're top of mind when there is that opportunity present. It's, I need to call Amy. You know what, gee, you know, we knew this day was gonna get here when we needed to buy this, this particular system or product or solution. Um, you know what? Call Amy. That's that's the where you want to be in that selling mix. It isn't we need to go find somebody, it's we need to call Amy. And and that's that was always where I wanted to be. And I and I think you did a, a great job of developing into that that role as well, where people were, were thinking of you. I need to I need to call Amy. And, and yeah, when, once you get to that, uh, get to that point, it's amazing how many more opportunities you get uh, because you've been planting seeds for a long time. And so and it's and I, and I think in today's world, I think a lot has changed because let's face it, it's hard to cold call anymore. Right. Nobody, not too many places. Can you just start picking up the phone and calling people and they answer the phone? Hey, how you been? I'm glad you called. So, yeah, you know, new techniques and ways of. Uh, Developing relationships, getting a hold of people—you uh, know—all this has evolved over the last several years. But uh, and, and then, of course, I think COVID probably even put a bigger exclamation on it because now you were calling into people's homes and things like that if you wanted to cold call, which made it even more complex. You know what, Dave? Like, I want you to come hang out in like tech circles because this is when I think all that, all those content about prospecting that I talked about—it's almost all about cold calling. And so here's the irony and. I think there are just listeners, there's a distinction between cold calling and warm calling, right? You can work up uh, whatever. And so there's, there's a different um, definitions and interpretations worth having before we, you know, get all irate about Dave and I uh, having opinions about the effectiveness of cold calling versus the other tactics, the beautiful, wonderful, amazing tactics that I were taught a lot of which, you know, by Dave, but uh, yeah, no, it's amazing how, many people have not had that aha moment in, in tech sales, B2B tech sales day, because there's a filter bubble around. And also the SDR model, how much do you know about the SDR model, right? The, these human beings that we put at the front of the pipeline to open up opportunities, hand, then hand the motions over to the SDRs. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that's, that's a, that's a, that's a big thing. It, it, it is. And it's, uh, you know, it just, I guess a lot of things can work if you um, if you perfect the model, if you work hard, perfect the model. Um, I'm I'm probably personally not a huge fan of that uh, that model. Um, from a and, I, and I'm trying to view it through the eyes of of a of a buyer, right? Um, you know, where you're being constantly called and and then turned over to a more senior person. Basically, it's lead gen, right? To have the same discovery conversation most of the time because the the handoff process. Oh, then don't, let's not forget about the friction between the the human beings on both sides, different styles, 
Um, oh, oh, of course, these are the most or the least experienced people on the team that we're giving the hardest part of the job to. I, I Oh, and then about the pushback on a leads, like, so we, the SDR thought it was qualified and hands it off and then to have it pushed back down, which means the SDR does not have control over their comp plan and their money. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Well, and, and yeah. let's face it, if you're, if you're going to be that SDR and your comp plan says that you get paid by how many handoffs you make, well, you're going to push the limit on what's a handoff, right? That's, you're going to try and get there as fast as you can, you know, your comp plan. But, uh, and, and I, and I think that it's, it's really up to a company to, to simply understand, will that model work for us? And does it work only short-term or does it work long-term? Are we, uh, is, is this purely a transactional sale or is this a solution sale where we're looking for a long-term relationship with this client where basically we, we want to establish a beachhead and then they're going to be a long-term client that we will continue to sell for long periods of time. And, or is it, you know what, I've got one solution to sell and the faster I can get paid on it, that client's done. I, you know, whether we're not looking for a repeat sale here, we're not looking for anything. So it, it really is a, a matter of what does that market uh, demand, uh, things like that. So it's, you know, different things can work, but, uh, I, I, you know, which is why there's no one perfect uh, plan that works for everybody. Isn't that the truth? Well said, well said. And so we call them full cycle AEs as somebody that's responsible for the full cycle of the deal. And I'm camp full cycle. And I think it was a Scott Lee's LinkedIn post, who's another um, pretty brilliant six-time sales leader in our industry, Dave, one of the few voices of reason and truth um, in a like against the flow, against the filter bubble. But anyway, so Scott Lee's had a post about how he's like not a fan of the model because one of the many reasons that he listed out was that he's morally opposed to teaching someone a piece of the job. You know, when you think about mm -hmm. the whole, and so, and I really like that one too. Like this is a key, this is a key part of it. And so to segment, like, even if I'm going to have a team of AEs that are not responsible for opening up their own opportunities then did I really teach them how to be an AE without covering the hardest part of the job? And same on the other side, right? Here we're burning through human beings, burning at the promise of, oh, we'll get promoted. Anyway, so it, we can push back, not push back on, but what is a win, right? So we can expect to get X results, but who says that that's, mm -hmm. why, why, what makes us think that it can't be better? And so when I think about all the dead bodies, that are burned through through this model, right? That's a key factor for me when yeah. when coming up with that decision. But it's 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 great to hear you say this. But at the same time, Dave, like I, this podcast has been an exercise, a learning exercise for me, a deep practice exercise for me, and I need to do a better job of of getting people onto the show that that don't agree with that that have very different opinions and perspectives to like have these conversations. And so while I'm delighted and, and joyous to hear you say these things that I agree with wholeheartedly because you taught me and trained me around most of them. I also at the same time am reminded like, damn it, I need to find somebody. That's you like should, a, because there's probably big, someone out there that can make an incredibly strong business case for why. I'm I know exactly who this person is. Seth List. I'm, I've asked you twice now to come on the show. I'm going to have like, this yeah. is, we're going to talk about this. We're going to get into this, but I can't wait. But anyway, Dave, continue. I'm sorry. Because it's, uh, I, and, and, and you asked me about uh, my transition from Thompson to Clients First, which is, we're a consulting company now. We don't sell any software. We, you know, we deploy software. We consult on the best practices and, and work with uh, mostly professional service firms on, and most of what we do is in the CRM or the practice management area, but uh, for law firms, but uh Something about consulting, I guess, I don't really consider someone a client until they're referenceable. The fact that they paid isn't enough. I have to be able to call that person up and say, well, you talk to somebody else for me. And once they say yes to that, now I consider them a real client. And so it's just a different, kind of a different bar that the, that I have to maintain now, at least for myself. And that, uh, and, and I, and I look back in my career and I go, you know, maybe if I'd have thought about that a little differently younger in my career, I might have done some things different and better. But that's how I, I look at it now, because I need to be able to go back to these clients and have them come back for more services from us 
but also to help me at times to refer new clients and things like that. So it's just a little different, a uh, little bit different. And I've really enjoyed the uh, the consulting aspect. We started out actually consulting on Thomson Reuters software, and uh, and we've kind of expanded uh, since uh, since moving away from that. So I left Thomson and consulting around their software to, to help make the clients more successful. I'm going to bridge the gap there for our listeners. So what Dave is describing, everyone, the CRM and law firm, the experience data. So this is all data. Um, and there's a massively important aspect in legal, and that is like maintaining the accuracy and trustworthiness of data. And when you think about the law firm business model, what's actually being sold, right? The product or the, it's the knowledge of your attorneys that is constantly evolving, right? So you think of case law or changes, then you think of people that are coming into the firm from other locations, whether it was an acquisition or, or what have you. And, but the importance of maintaining that experience database and the client database, which is, and the financial database, which is a function, like the, I'm thinking view about Dave and like, you know, the matter into matter codes and all that shit. So what Dave is describing would be probably one of the highest end like Salesforce solution architects that you could possibly imagine times 500 because of the importance of the accuracy of the information and the width with which it's it's drawn from around the globe, right? Because a lot of Dave's clients that he's talking about, these are global entities, like I think Fortune 50 type of firms or the client base that Dave's referring to. So again, all data on the most like beautiful level, which it's funny, Dave, because when I think about how selling information services like really kind of changed me as a person, like, you know, Johnson and Johnson, 250 page report being drilled on how to, which graphs to point at and understanding the implications of each visual and the story to link with. Then I think about SaaS sales and I've taken what I learned about selling information from, from you, right, about the data and about information and proving out the value after the fact, right, which is, hey, the business decisions that have been made, right, because we've got better information that more people have access to. Here's the ROI, friends. That's a hard thing to do. But anyway, learning how to master it there and then coming to SaaS and seeing how information that's generated with the acquisition of a new tech tool is not leveraged hardly at all in the sales motion or even in like the, the renewal process. And it's, it's, it's a little startling sometimes, but also like, I'm kind of like, I've, I've used create client reports to, to clean up and tighten a renewal process and extend out the, you know, the annual, like the contract size by injecting information into the sales process. Again, more on the client um, renewal side of the fence, but it's, do you, I mean, did, did you know that? Did you know that there was such a gap there? And do you have any thoughts about that, using information within the context of the motion? I, I, I do. In fact, I, I think when I look at technology, I think that uh, a buyer, well, they expect the technology to work technologically sound, right? They're not thinking of it in terms of does it have bugs and does it have this? Let's start with the the point of entry, the bar is so low, the software works as advertised. That needs to be the baseline. The job of the salesperson at that point is to bring the use cases. How do I bring this alive and apply it to the business so that we can more effectively run the business, make good decisions, make our clients happy? If my client happens to be a lawyer, the lawyer doesn't care about how the buttons get pushed. They don't care how the sausage is made. What they want is tell me what I need to know about this particular client that will help us get more business from them. Help, help me solve the client's problem for them. And pushing the buttons on the software doesn't do anything. It's the use case that the salesperson has to understand to bring it to life. And, and I think that's where sometimes there's a disconnect you see a lot of software demonstrated in what is almost a training class fashion that they didn't bring it to life for the client. They didn't show them, this is how you solve problems with this. This is how you make money with this. This is how you please your client with this. And, and it really becomes more about, okay, push here and, and, and it, it runs to the printer and the page will print out. 
it doesn't, you know, none, none of that stuff really matters from a buying decision standpoint. That's training. Hours reading through that Johnson and Johnson report to be able to do that on demand while practicing and preparing with the great Dave Whiteside. Hours and hours and hours. I'm telling you, Dave, I pulled out this this the, the report and I could just, it was like osmosis. Like I just got hit with a wave of all these memories of like doing exactly that with just pointing at a graph and saying, tell me the use case here. Tell me two other use cases here. And then I think about the way that we train on how to do demos now in my, in tech sales. And you know what, Dave, I'll even take it a step further. There is a big co-mingling of discovery and demo. And so people are talking about doing demos without touching the product, but then also trying to do demos and identify use cases without having done one lick of discovery, like good luck with that. And so, yeah, that was pretty spot on and brilliant. All right. So I'm looking at the clock here. I, there's a final question at the end that I'm going to ask, and I'll give you a hint. It's like, what's one piece of advice about uncomfortable conversations? So that's the last one. Since you haven't listened to any, which I love even more. The, ne the question though, Dave, like I'm thinking about what is the hardest conversation, uncomfortable conversation that you've had to have over your career as in the like revenue business? Or one that's like memorable that comes to mind when I say that as like maybe kept you up. In yeah. Um, yeah. I had a fairly major client that I had, you know, we had, we had worked on a deal for about a year and it, and it comes back to the, you know, when you tell somebody you're going to do something, you, you need to be able to deliver on it. And I had the approval. If I thought I had the approval, apparently I didn't to provide them with a very specific set of contract terms and got right down to the end of December when it was time to sign. And the contracts group said, wait a minute, no, we're not doing that. So after all this work and all the internal promises that my, my small, my group of champions had made inside their firm, I had to go to them and say, I am so sorry, but this isn't going to happen. Mm. You know, it's, it's one of those things where you just, you really feel bad for them. I mean, I felt bad for me. Don't get me wrong. It cost me a fortune, but, but I felt worse for them because they were embarrassed in front of their leadership and in front of their firm. And, you know, it's just, just a very, uh, I mean, it's beyond uncomfortable. It's, it's, it's painful money aside. It's painful personally because I just, I mean, I, I just couldn't help but look back and go, I screwed this up somewhere. I assumed something that wasn't true. I made a mistake in the process because I wanted it to happen. So I skipped some steps. Apparently I need to go back and figure out where that was, but now it, in some ways it didn't matter because the client was already punished, but it's, it's one of those things you learn, like you just got to be able to, to, to make sure you've covered yourself the whole way when you're working some of these deals, because there's nothing worse than having to, to go to a client and just, you know, and just break bad news to them. Now, I'm the first one to believe that as soon as you know, you need to get there. Bad news doesn't get better with time, as they say. But, uh, but, it's, but it's such an uncomfortable thing. And that goes back to the, you get one reputation, you get, you know, I mean, all the things that I believe come into, are put at risk when you get yourself in a spot like that. And it's, uh, I've, I've made sure that didn't happen again to me, at least not to that level, but, uh, but it is absolutely one of the most uncomfortable things. And that was probably 15 years ago. And I, it, it's something I think about every single time now when I'm over promise, you know, don't over promise. It's just, you know, Dave, like, this is the Jordana episode, the one that I, I referenced where we just got to practicing, which is where you started. Like, we talked, we learn so much more from our mistakes than we do from our wins. 
And like to hear you say that, that this was a massive one. And then also like you've thought about it and it's, it's dictated the amount of, I'm sure, due diligence and level of clause defining with, within legal teams, especially our own, that it just reiterates this idea that mistakes are something that we can grow from and maybe being less adverse to talking about them or less eager to talk about our wins. <laughs> you know, we can start to like shed some light and normalize the, the messy, which is I think a big part of Take Care, which is a project that we didn't even get to talk about, but we could talk about that offline. No, you're, you're right. Losing teaches so much more than winning. When we have the step where we think about what went wrong, right? So I think after action reviews, which I don't know, I don't see a lot of people, uh, particularly on sales teams. Like I, I don't know, I, I haven't seen any studies about the percentage of sales floors that have like a peer to peer meeting, you know, but let's start with that. If there's no organized systematic way to even discuss between peers, what our wins and our mistakes were, then natural human behavior, which is to be embarrassed about them or to hide them or to certainly not advertise them or talk about them. Like, uh, you know, someone that we, I, that used a belt sender in high school on their foot to make, um, their foot a little bit softer, which is something that is funny that I mentioned in the outro or intro, which is a podcast term, Dave, at the beginning of every episode, you use yeah. the same intro and outro. Anyway, I talk about doing that, but anyway, so I know that we're not talking about mistakes enough is where I'm going with this. And so it was nice to hear I, I, you. This is something I'll, I'll I, and I think I've probably shared this with you in the past. I think we lost it on price is the most overused excuse in sales. You know what? I'm sure there are times when you lose it on price, but losing it on price assumes everything else was equal. And usually it isn't. So I, I you know what? Of the, on the list of 20 things that went wrong, price better be the last one. To me, it's it's a crutch. It's a fallback that it's sort of like an easy check the box in a in the CRM system when we lost it on price. So that when you know they start analyzing statistics and this and that, they go, gee, we lose a lot of them on price. Because when a salesperson screws up the sales cycle, they don't like to absorb the blame. They like to place blame. It's the fault of the client. It's the fault of the company. It's the fault of the product. The price was too high. There's never that moment of introspection, at least not nearly often enough, where they say, I fucked that sale up. I can tell you the two things I did wrong, and I'm the one that screwed this up. I didn't talk to the right people. I didn't, didn't present to the right people at the right time. I, didn't, I, I skipped some steps in here. I tried to rush things because it was the end of my quarter. And if, if you go back and just look at things and be true, true to yourself about it, more salespeople would realize that they screwed it up. They didn't lose it on price. The company didn't lose it for them. They screwed it up. And I just think that people would become better salespeople if they would go through that exercise. I got to get one of those like little slapping hands <laughs> where you <laughs> Wow, that was brilliant. Okay, final question, Dave Whiteside. And I'm sad because I like I, I wanted to get into like the difference between deciding to be a manager versus stay an IC, which is our term for individual contributor. But we'll save that for next time. So final question, one piece mm -hmm. of advice for our listeners about uncomfortable conversations. You know what? Completely own them. Don't just... Think about what needs, what has happened. Think about what needs to be said and, and face up to it head on. You, you'll just always be more pleased with the outcome because anytime you try to place the blame somewhere else or to make it sound like something different, people look at you and in their mind, they're calling bullshit on you. And you might as well just accept that. So Whatever it is that there's room for people to call bullshit, 
you should probably eliminate that from the conversation and not not have it out there because that's the part people will remember about the conversation is the bullshit. They won't remember the fact that you stood up, took the blame, took the hit, whatever it is that that needed to happen. And that that to me has always been the, you know, what you see that it's I just call it a rookie mistake, right? It's I'm going to blame some somebody or something else for this because I I don't want them to think it was me. You're actually better off to have them think it's you and you're owning it. Because it's different differentiation that well it's you show up as a human being and that level of ownership and responsibility for your own actions that is different and even just being that human being that you describe it it sets you apart i know that from my experience because i took your advice and i did these things and i watched how that happened and how it shifted and that's what i mean is just to say that is brilliant it's brilliant. And no one has said anything like that, actually, as the piece of advice. So you are unique, as we already know, and special. And I miss you. I miss more, need more Dave Whiteside in my life. But uh, I think I know how to fix that. So thank you for coming. My pleasure to be here. My pleasure to spend the time with you. Yeah. I'm excited for everybody else to hear we have to say, I'm excited to see the data on this episode. I'm excited to listen to the ripple effects of some of the different angles of what you've spoken about here. And I'll be sure to report back and like fill you in. But anyway, Dave Whiteside, you're the best. You're clearly still the best. Enjoy this beautiful June day in Tampa. You're still in Tampa, right? Jacksonville. Jacksonville. That's right. Yes. Damn it. Jacksonville. Okay. It is okay. I'm thinking about moving down to uh, West Palm Beach, mm-hmm. actually. Yeah. So we could talk more about that. All right, Dave. I am going to run. You have shit to do. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And to our listeners, truth, love, and joy, friends, thank you for listening to the conversation. Happy selling. Man, that was heavy, but necessary, you know, important, important stuff being thrown around. Virtues that we as humans can build a sturdy foundation on. I heard words like trust. I heard words like action. I heard words like consistency. And uh, I think this is important, but I, I also live in the real world, right? Where I trust that the action Amy didn't take was to consistently feed the dog or file her legal disclaimer paperwork from all the unnecessary risks she takes on a weekly basis. Karen is gonna be pissed. Karen! All right, friends. The only way this works as a hotline is if we find some people to come play. Anybody who's interested or brave enough or desperate enough, because let's be serious, that's where it's at. Everything you need to know is in the show notes. Yeah, call absolutely. Call in. Don't have enough to do? You want a couple of books to read? Maybe we can boss you around for a couple hours? Yeah, please. By all means, call. If you like what you're hearing or are excited for this shit show and where it's going to go, definitely follow us on whatever podcast device is your preference, even though I, I seriously have a hard time identifying with anything non-Spotify, but, you know, I guess I'll come to terms with that. If you find any value in things that we're talking about, do tell a friend. I consider that the highest honor. Of course, there's always the public review of any kind, although part of me thinks that I should not ask that until we're out of beta. Just a note for sponsors from Karen and Pete down in Legal. We are anxious to receive your call. And if you are looking to help or join the cause or create change in a positive way, Please reach out to anyone but me because I have enough to do. And Amy will definitely be interested in taking your money to help more people, which is what we do here. You know, stuff. Legal stuff. You know, it's pretty crazy. I still can't believe people listen to shit I say. Yeah, like there, there's certainly a kernel of truth somewhere in there, but you know, it's, it's just, it's wrapped up in a story. Order the dog food, Amy. Order it. 
Chewy.com. Possible sponsor. Lola, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, baby. I love you. Here, take some pets. Come, come sit up on my lap. I don't know about you listeners, but I enjoy my podcast on Stitcher. I mean, I don't have a premium account because I'm holding out for sponsorship. Hey, Stitcher, looking at you. Also, I believe we mentioned Chewy, so there will be a link to them in the show notes, even though we are not sponsored by them. And I bought my dog food at Target this week because it was on sale and I saved on shipping. All right, friends. Thank you for listening to the conversation. For more ridiculousness, check out the extended cut of the outro. And that's a wrap. I can't. I can't. I can't. So this is Pete, your disclaimer specialist, coming to you at the super secret disclaimer portion of the show because this is a pod about transparency and difficult conversations. And with everyone being so open and honest, um, I must be. So here goes. Um, as the outroer to the outroe, I'm sorry. I apologize. You know, I, I misled you intentionally. As your attorney, I must confess that I am not a fucking attorney. Um, I have not passed the bar exam in the state in which I live. I uh, have never represented anyone well in anything, let alone in a court of law. Um, but again, these are difficult conversations that we're, Amy's having with, with her guests, and, and I lied. And I should tell you that. I should be open and honest because, you know, we have been. So we can all be better. We can all do better together. And now I'm just rambling at this point. It's just, who cares? It's an outro, right? Like, this is just going to fade into blackness like the Mars rover. Maybe a little bit less sad. That was fucking sad. Oh, let's not be that sad. Come on, guys. We can do better.